0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Ethan Rutherford, author of the short story collection, The Peripatetic Coffin.
1: As a reader, I like short story collections that are coherent, but the setting works in a way that is different than, than other collections that perhaps have reoccurring characters and are set sort of all over the course of the same period of time.
0: This is an interview that aired originally on Aspen Public Radio in 2013 before First Draft was a podcast. So I'm pulling it out of the vault while I'm working on producing new episodes this week. We'll hear more from Ethan Rutherford in a few minutes. First, I want to invite you to be part of the First Draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot firstdraftwriters. I've heard that it takes listeners seven times to hear a pitch before becoming members. So I invite you to beat the odds if this is one through six, or if it's seven or more, please consider how valuable your patronage is to this podcast. Your support keeps the essential voices of writers sharing their craft and their work over the airwaves. Membership starts at just $6 a month and includes perks like extra cuts from the interviews that don't make the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and perhaps best of all, pitch-free, ad-free episodes every single week. You will receive your own link to an ad-free, pitch-free First Draft feed that you can play wherever you listen to podcasts. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters and join the First Draft family. Every month you get a newsletter and at random extra thank you gifts from me. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash First Draft Writers. I have an archive of more than 230 episodes, and I hope that from them you have learned something about craft and heard new and interesting perspectives about the world we live in and our human journey. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to First Draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of, First Draft, reminder, membership matters. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. And I also have a website now. You can find out more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. Stay tuned at the end of this episode. I'll offer recommendations on other episodes you can dig into. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Ethan Rutherford, author of the short story collection, The Peripatetic Coffin and Other Stories. The book, which is a collection of eight short stories, was chosen by Barnes & Noble as a summer 2013 Discover Great New Writers program. The stories in the collection have been called wildly inventive and cover a breadth of subjects and settings, including a summer camp where campers will defend their honor at all costs under the guidance of their head counselor, a group of Tsarist-era Russian sailors trapped in Arctic ice on their ship, a mishmash crew on a doomed Confederate submarine during the Civil War, and a futuristic whaling expedition that takes place in an ocean of sand. Rutherford's title story was published in the Best American Short Stories of 2009. He has an MFA in creative writing from the University of Minnesota. I began the interview by asking Ethan Rutherford if he was a storyteller as a child.
1: I should I should probably um, phone my mother in. And get her in on the other line, and she could let you know. But when when I was a when I was a kid, I fell in love with comic books and movies. I mean, those those were my narrative engines when I was a kid, and I I really thought that what I wanted to do was write comic books and illustrate comic books. It turned out that I was just a horrible artist. I mean, even my elementary school teachers, my art teachers, said, you know, maybe you should think about um, other things that you would want to do. It just never. Went anywhere, and it sort of naturally just went into reading books and adventure stories. I got hooked on Treasure Island, um, The Twelve Labors of Hercules, and I just became a library kid.
0: And so did you go to an MFA right out of school?
1: No, I didn't go to an MFA right out of school. I went down. A friend of mine said, hey, I have an apartment in New York. I need a roommate. Do you want to come down? I said, sure. Um, So I went down and I lived in New York for four years. Um, and worked at a bookstore in New York in the West Village called Three Lives. And then, when it became clear that um, I did, I really did want to write, and I did want to go to an MFA program, I, you know, put my best foot forward. I put on the work that I thought was really great together, and I sent it out to like thirty MFA programs. This was about four years after I graduated from college, and sent it out to, you know, everywhere, all over the place. And I was like, I can't wait to see how many of these schools really want me to come. And I got rejected from every single school. 30 schools sent rejections. Um, and it was devastating. Uh, and it took me about three months to sort of figure out that I did want to write, even if no one was that interested in hearing from me. And so I wrote in some ways from sort of that feeling of rejection. Um, and then I I worked the whole next year and uh, submitted again to all the same schools and got into a number of ones, the same ones that rejected me.
0: The Peripatetic Coffin and Other Stories contains eight stories that are very diverse. There's men in submarines during the Civil War and there's a friendship between two boys and there's a mugging and sort of a futuristic story about sandworms. There's such a a breadth of stories. What does that sort of reflect about your mind?
1: You know, that... that is a question that I'm sure. Actually, my wife would love to hear as well. Um, she'd love to hear the answer to that. For me, I like veering tonally. When I when I read short story collections, I like short story collections that take you, that don't restate um, the same thing over and over, and they take you sort of far away into sort of to different events. And when I sit down to write, it's a version of that question, which is sort of like you know where where do I want to go today? Where do I want to spend my time, and sometimes that was aboard a submarine, sometimes it was in the future that you were talking about with the futuristic whaling expedition. And sometimes it's in your own memory, in the sort of nostalgia for the the mid-80s and Brian Bosworth and the Seattle Seahawks. As a reader, I like short story collections that are coherent, but the setting works in a way that is different than, than other collections that perhaps have reoccurring characters and are set sort of all over the course of the same period of time, I have a little bit of a restless imagination that I feel like if I've said something in a particular way, I'm better off just leaving it alone and not restating it and going off and sort of going further afield um, in writing the kinds of things that I am interested in. I'm also a musician and I've found uh, that the albums I like are the albums that take you on sort of a journey and there's some fast songs, there's some slow songs. There's a song that's in a minor key. There's a song in a major key. And it was definitely on my mind, um, thinking about a book as an album and where you place the stories and the kind of journey that you want people to take. So as for what it reflects about my mind, I think it just has to do with my interest in wanting to go somewhere and be transported.
0: I noticed that you, a lot of them, you write about groups in isolation, you write about people at a camp, people in a ship, people in a submarine, people on a sort of future whaling expedition. So you're putting a a group of people in a situation where they're isolated, not really interacting with the rest of the world. So there are those similarities, and I'm wondering what's interesting to you about that
1: yeah that's uh, that's an interesting question for me. You know, purely because this is sort of a first draft thing, we're talking about the craft of writing. It, it, you make it easier on yourself if you isolate your characters um, in terms of telling the story because you sort of you limit the doors that they can walk through, the escape hatches that, they, that your character um, can leave the story. So, uh, I mean, I grew up sailing, and I love boats. I, I would spend all my time thinking about boats if I possibly could. It happens to be really great luck that uh, a ship is a wonderful narrative vehicle as well because once you're on a ship you have to confront whatever problem is, has occurred on the ship because there's literally nowhere else to go. So the idea of sort of groups in isolation, it, it works in terms of just moving a story along because problems as they come up have to be resolved in one way or another. The The moment that I'm interested in is a writer are the moments, I guess I would call it the talking heads moment where uh, i don't know if you've heard the song once in a lifetime by the talking heads yes there's the moment in there where david byrne comes up and he goes you may think of yourself you know you may ask yourself my god what have i done um and that sort of became the unifying question for me with all of these stories that these are sort of groups of people who are coming who are being forced to make a decision about how they're going to move forward in their lives either as a group. Or as individuals. And in each case, they sort of come to that moment where they finally understand what it is that they're capable of and what they've done. And there's that question that sort of brings out, which is that, my God, what have I done? And sometimes that question is said in wonder. I I never would have thought that I was capable of this. Sometimes it's said in horror, you know, I can't believe, um, you know, knowing where I started that that this is what I, you know, it, it happens on the ship stories. Frequently, you know, where they go and, and the story ends with them um, in an explosion. You can imagine those guys being like, "Well, I can't believe uh, that this just happened." Um, but it's about uh, sort of taking responsibility and also th- the diffusion of responsibility in the way that groups interact, individuals interact uh, with groups. That's an anxiety of mine. How do you how does how do you behave when you are in a group? Do you maintain your personal integrity or do you sort of somehow fall along sort of the lines and sort of the decisions that the group is making until there is until you pass the point of no return.
0: Yeah, well it's interesting because a lot of your characters know that they're in dire situations in the peripatetic coffin and in the Saint Anna, but then in Camp Winnesaka some real real serious things have happened, but the main character has no idea. Or maybe he does, but he just can't face it because he has bigger priorities. So that must have been interesting to explore, too, sort of when maybe seriousness or dire circumstances happen and you can't face it.
1: Yeah, that's, you know, um, that's a really elegant read on that story. And that's that's what I was hoping to do. I mean, one of the things that a lot of the stories are about people who eventually have to come to terms with what it is that they have done in that story inverts that and has a, has a character who is responsible for the death of, No, you know, I did a death count on that once. It's about 65 campers that he has killed over the course of this story. And he refuses to take final responsibility for his actions. Charlie Baxter, who is wonderful, he's a great writer and an, just an amazing teacher, um, calls this sort of story a dysfunctional narrative, where you essentially said, instead of saying, I made a mistake, you say, mistakes were made and it's this absolute diffusal of responsibility, um, and refusing to look at what you've done. And that for me is what made that story kind of a fun challenge. Like what what can we throw at this guy in terms of, you know, aren't you going to take accountability for this? And let's just watch him dodge it. The other thing that kind of fed into that story is when I was thinking about it, I was reading about the Iraq war and I read about you know the Pat Tillman debacle, where you know Pat Tillman, who was uh, the NFL player, signed up for the army after, um, for the Marines after after 9/11, and uh, was killed, and it turns out that it was friendly fire. And so I was trying, and but it was not in the best interest of um, the war effort for that story to get out. It was in their best interest to say he died, he was a hero, for first. When this story did come out, you could see sort of all the backpedaling. So Camp Winnisaka, for me, is a story about the ways in which people in charge try to bend the narrative to their, um, to make them look better in a more positive light.
0: So why um, short stories? You know, a lot of people might gravitate right to the novel, and I've read that that short stories are sort of it for you.
1: Every time I've tried to write something longer, it just stalls out very quickly. And I think that part of that is because the way that I write is I write on sentence to sentence. I don't draft quickly. I just write. I can't move forward if a sentence isn't correct. So I I work very slowly. And the idea of writing a novel, doing that, I mean, it would be 15 years. And then I would want to rewrite the entire thing. What's wonderful about writing short stories is that I can say, okay, I want to try this and see if it works. I want to go to this period in time and see if it works. And you know that you're not going to be stuck there for too long because it's a short story. You have 30 pages to fill, and that's it. And then you can go on to the next um, adventure, as opposed to with a novel, you really have to commit to a time period or the the project that you're working on for years and years and years. And it might take you years to figure out that where you're going isn't where you had intended um, the entire way. The other thing that I love about short stories is 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 that it forces you, when you're thinking about narrative, to pick like the signal moment in a character's life where things change, and it forces you to really make those decisions, in um, in hone in on those moments. Um, and I just I'm drawn to those hinge moments more than I am drawn to sort of big sweeping narratives. Um, the short story writer uh, Stephen Milhauser. Well, he also he also writes novels. He's one of the few guys who can write amazing. writes amazing novels and short stories. But he wrote a defense of the short story and saying the short story is the sirloin while the novel is the entire cow, Um, which all short story writers, we kind of cling to that considering um, how frequently we get ignored.
0: How long does it take you to write a story?
1: Oh, it can. um, It depends. I've been writing. I've written. I've been working on short certain short stories for four or five years that still aren't right. Um, in other times, it comes out fairly quickly. I think the the quickest that I've ever drafted a story is probably about 10 days. But it's hard to say. For me, the difference between drafting and editing, it all sort of gets mixed up. Um, generally, I would say it takes me about four to six months of real solid work on one story before I'm even marginally okay with sending it out to uh, my friends to say what
0: Yeah, I think that's sometimes what people don't realize about short stories is how hard they are.
1: Oh, yeah, it's it's excruciating. It's working in miniature, you know, and it's very easy when you're working in miniature to break what you've been putting together. So oftentimes you'll draft something. You go, this is almost there. It's 80% there. I just need to tinker with the beginning. And because short stories are such finely tuned machines, if you tinker with the beginning, it throws the ending completely out of whack. So then you have to go back and revise and make sure that everything really works. I mean, the the mistakes, it's an unforgiving art form. Um, and I think that people really do think that it just comes out and you go, oh, this is just an afternoon of writing. And I think for some people it was like that. I think Updike was amazing. I mean, it just came out of Updike the first, right the first time. Um, but for me, that's certainly not case. Every sentence is, is really agonized over, in my case. And it just takes it takes so long to write a short story.
0: I asked Ethan to read something by another author that speaks to him.
1: The passage I'm going to read is from A High Wind in Jamaica by Richard Hughes. It's the final paragraph in the first section of the book. Um, it's right in the middle of this huge sort of windstorm. The tornado, which is the high wind of the title, has sort of ravaged this plantation, and everybody is huddling inside the house as as the roof is sort of being ripped off. And just to set it up a little bit, the story is about um, these children who are there um, and uh, their experience of this high wind and then eventually they are sent away from Jamaica and they get aboard a pirate ship and this amazing adventure. Um, But what I've always loved about this book is the weirdness, um, the weird perspective um, that these events have is to hold to the children's perspective. And so What has happened right before I'm going to start reading is that they've seen their beloved cat. The the wind is up. Everybody's in a lot of danger. Um, And the children have just seen their beloved cat, Tabby, um, being chased by feral cats on the island. Um, And Tabby has just come into the house, has been chased by five or six cats. They sort of are coming through the door and then just bolts and shoots out into the wilderness um, with these other sort of feral cats on Uh, his tale. Um, And so I'm going to read just sort of the last section of um, the last paragraph of the first section of the book and then I'll, I'll, I'll let you know what it is about the section that I think is so great. With great good sense Mr. Thornton brought with him from the room above a couple of decanters of Madeira and everyone had a swig. All the children made the most of this unholy chance but somehow to Emily the bottle got passed twice and each time she took a good pull. It was enough at their age. And while what was left of the house was blown away over their heads, through the lull in the ensuing aerial return match, John, Emily, Edward, Rachel, and Laura, blind drunk, slept in a heap on the cellar floor, asleep over which the appalling fate of Tabby, torn to pieces by those fiends almost under their very eyes, dominated with the easy empire of nightmare.
0: So tell me about why why this for you.
1: Richard Hughes is an amazing writer and this book this book is full of strange authorial fears and perspective where he looks at things that you never would look at you would never think to write the way that he writes. And it took me a long time to figure out that what he was doing is he was writing from a child perspective to some degree. And what isn't what is amazing to me about this passage is how closely it, it hews to what the experience of what it's like to be a child. In this, in this passage, the kids are in great danger. The roof is getting blown off the house. I mean, they're in a huge tornado. But the thing that is terrifying to them that dominates um, their dreams with the easy empire of nightmare, um, the thing that they are preoccupied with is the fate of their house cat, who is now out there in the woods sort of being torn apart um, by other cats. In that they don't have the perspective that they themselves are in danger, but what is upsetting to them is that this animal that they have come to love is in very real danger, and it's this sort of strange deflection of understanding what's going on that um, seems incredibly true to me. To the experience of being a kid, you don't know you don't know how bad things are as they're happening, but you do know, for example, that your dad's hands are shaking, and that's what it is that scares you—not um, the fact. Um, That there's, you know, some huge guy knocking at the door. It's seeing your father frightened. And that's what sticks with you as a kid. And I think that he nails that. I also, also love just the phrase, um, uh, dominated with the easy empire of nightmare. I've just never heard easy empire before. It's just perfect.
0: Well, great. Thanks for sharing. And how about if you could read something that you wrote? Um, Sure. I I asked if it would be something tricky or hard or something that changed for you or something that you just like.
1: Um, So I thought that I would read, and I I was trying to think of what would be good for a first draft, and I thought that maybe I would read the last paragraph that has changed the most from initial draft to to the final shape that it takes in the book. And so I th- I'm going to read the last paragraph of um, the St. Anna, which is a story that comes in the middle of the Peripatetic Coffin. And it's about um, these sailors, these Russian sailors who were stuck on ice in 1913. They've been drifting further, further, further and further further north with their ship, um, clearly sort of to their death. And the moment that they're at right now is they have just made the decision. They've come to understand that the ship is never going to break free, um, and it's their turn. To leave uh, the ship and walk across the ice. Um, so here we go, the St. Anna. And what of us? If we had any courage at all, we would wrap ourselves in blankets and meet the weather with fateful and furrowed expressions. Instead, we methodically empty the hold of all remaining food and fuel. We empty the ship and lay everything on the ice. It takes us two weeks to prepare for our journey. The mapping equipment we leave. The personal effects, we leave. The rifles, tents, biscuits, dried fruit, sleep sacks, and everything else, we pack into a single sledge that can be pulled across the ice by the six of us, hitching in turn. The St. Anna stands now almost perpendicular to the ice, as if she herself were some great beast breaking the surface of the ocean, lurching up from the deep. Her mast, We tell ourselves that when stretched so thin, men will shame kindness and become unforgiving. That survival itself is a form of grace. We tell ourselves that just beyond that ridge, south, will be an open channel, an island. That we will be rescued.
0: So you said this changed a lot for you.
1: Yeah. So in the original draft of the story, they stay on the ship. And the ship, the ice actually opens up and it disgorges them into the um, North Sea. But it's. But I was very pleased with myself because I was like, well, this is amazing. If, if the story started in 1913 and they were up on the ice and they were locked in there and then two and a half years later they get disgorged into the North Sea, they don't know that World War I started. Um, and so the end of the story was them going out into the sea sort of being, it was this incredible, I thought I was so pleased with the irony that they survived all these years, they did all these terrible things to, to each other on ice. They got free, they were feeling incredible um, and then suddenly they were. They, they got sunk, they got exploded and sunk by a U-boat. You know, something they had never seen before um, because they were flying Russia, a Russian flag and Um, the Germans were sinking Russian ships in the North Sea. And I thought that was just the coolest way to end the story. I was like, this is really great. Um, And when I got the edits back from Echo, from the editor, she just sort of had a question mark and was just like, you know, is this what the story, is the story really about that sort of twisting irony? Because if you have a story where at the end, a U-boat sort of comes out of nowhere and destroys the ship, that, that somehow kind of it just overshadows and just overtakes the entire story. It was also very awkwardly told. Um, you know, I think they described it like a big metal whale comes up out of it. You know, it's horrible. Um, it, but the editor was nice enough to say, you know, I'm not entirely sure this is working. I don't know if this is where the emotional heart of the story actually is. Do you mind taking another look at this story? And I was really resistant to it because like once you, once, at least for me, once I've sort of written something down, should sort of go, well, listen, sink or swim. That's how the story goes. Um, but because she had asked, I took another look at it, and, and she was right. It's not The emotional part of the story isn't what happens after they get off the ice. It's about the decision, actually, to stay aboard the ship or to leave it. Um, and in some ways, it's better to kind of leave their fate unsealed. And my impulse as a writer is to overstuff stories, is to say, you know, what would be better is if, if we had a helicopter that came in right at this moment, or if we had an explosion that went on over there. And so it's always uh, my particular goal to sort of to get that stuff out of there as much as I possibly can in the editing process. And this was just an example, the most sort of clear example in this collection of stories where that had happened, where the story was one way, it had one ending. We just sort of cut the ending and kind of left it more ambiguous. I think the story actually works a lot better for saying less, if that makes sense.
0: So I have five questions that I prepared that I ask all of my authors, and the first one is, where do you write?
1: Um, I write in coffee shops. I like being around people as I'm working on the story. Um, It feels like sort of being alone in a group, Um, and I like that feeling. I've tried many, many times, to sit by myself in a room and I just get restless. I just go stir-crazy.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: Uh, I'm a musician and I play in a band. And so when I feel like there's just been a little bit... When I've spent too much time by myself in a room and I've worn the same clothes for five days in a row, and even I know that everything's kind of starting to smell, I go out and I play music with my friends. We have rehearsal. We have shows. Um, And It's a different kind of creativity. It's still creativity, but it's a different kind. It's purely collaborative. Um, And I find that that it's an incredibly sort of revitalizing thing for me to sort of be playing music with other people. It makes me want to then sort of spend time by myself. So I alternate between music and writing. And those two things seem to feed off each other in a very positive way for me.
0: And who do you show your work to to first get feedback?
1: Uh, Two friends that I've known forever, before we had even, any business even calling ourselves writers, um, Paul Yoon, who is a, the, whose novel is coming out, called Snow Hunters, um, in August. And um, I met him in New York, and we've been friends for about you know, 15 years now. And uh, Matt Burgess, who was a guy that I met at the MFA program, whose book Dogfight just came out a couple years ago. Um, and those two are not only great friends, but I think that they're great readers. In, but our writing styles are different enough You never run the risk of becoming too influenced by one another's voices. Matt is great at sort of doing dialogue. Paul is great at sort of doing scenes and all this stuff. And all of that stuff kind of filters in, and that's why they're sort of unbelievable readers. They also, we've been working together long enough that um, I know what they're trying to do in their work, and they know what I'm trying to do in my work. So you never have that thing where you go, if this was my story, here's what I would do. Because you know their work enough to sort of help it become what it's trying to be.
0: And how have you dealt with rejection?
1: You just say, thank you very much. Can I have another?
0: All right. And what is your favorite word?
1: Uh, my favorite word these days is uh, turbine. I've been doing a lot of driving, and there are a lot of windmills that are these you know, the wind energy farm stuff down in Iowa, and these huge turbines that are just sort of going off in the distance. And I just find myself saying, as you're driving on those flat roads, I just find myself saying, turbine, turbine turbine. I just like the
0: word. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Ethan Rutherford, author of the short story collection, The Peripatetic Coffin. This interview was recorded in 2013. If you like today's show, check out my interview with a writer you might also enjoy, short story writer Paul Yoon. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. A huge thank you goes out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.